I'm sure I don't need to tell you that we live in a day and age and culture that is drowning in gender confusion. Because the lines have become unbelievably blurred with regard to what it means for a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman. It almost seems as if everything is upside down and inside out from the way in which God intended it to be, at least with regard to sex and gender, including who is allowed to use a public bathroom. As you know, the government declares all public schools must treat the students equally regardless of their biological sex, which means... It's based on their inner feelings of maleness and femaleness. So any boy who identifies as a girl on any given day can use the restroom in the women's restroom. And any girl who identifies as a boy on any given day can use the restroom in the men's restroom. So we live in a day and age with all sorts of gender confusion, including an article I read entitled, My Brother's Pregnancy and the Making of a New American Family. Now, of course, that wouldn't make the news except for the fact that Evan, who is now 34 years old, was born as a biological female, but at age 19, identified as a boy and took steps necessary to become a man, yet never stopped wanting to have a baby, so decided to stop hormonal treatment long enough to get pregnant. So the article is a story of how he's a man with a buzzed haircut and a beard who just gave birth to a baby and is now breastfeeding his son. Again, my point is we live in a culture that is drowning in gender confusion, where everything's upside down and inside out from a way that God created it to be. According to Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, male and female he created them. Psalm 139 says, God forms our inward parts and knits us together in our mother's womb, so we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and our souls know it very well. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, because this morning in Titus chapter 2, Paul is going to speak directly to older men, older women, younger men, and younger women. And he's not going to hesitate to call us to delight ourselves in the glory of the gospel, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So a people who absolutely love, delight, and are captured with Christ and how that gets worked out in ways that are consistent with our age, sex, and gender. So Paul's not afraid to talk about gender-driven good works, and neither should we. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, page 998, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I encourage you to have your Bible open, outline right there in your Bible. Title of my sermon this morning, Good Works in the Church. Two points. Everybody catch that? Just two this morning. I know that's strange. Throws you off. Reality of good works, reason for good works. Follow along as I read Titus chapter 2, entirety of our passage, verses 1 to 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now notice the contrast Paul is calling for in verse 1. Paul says, but as for you, Titus, so an obvious comparison between Titus and the false teachers who, chapter 1, verse 16, profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, and they must be silenced because their teaching is upsetting whole families. Chapter 1, verse 11. In contrast, Titus is commanded to teach what accords with sound doctrine. How? Notice how this command to teach bookends the entire chapter. Because Paul says in verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine, but then he says it again, verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Which is just another way to say these things are of absolute importance with regard to putting things in order in the church. Remember, that's why Paul wrote Chapter 1, verse 6, so that Titus might put what remained in order in the church in Crete. So that's what he's doing. As you can see, by walking through different ages and different genders and different situations and giving very specific instructions on what godliness should look like in the church. But let me remind you, so important, your good works do not earn your salvation. You can only be saved by grace alone, forgiven of your sin, empowered to live for God's glory by the work of the Spirit, through faith alone in Christ alone. Which is what Paul says, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But that salvation is never alone. Instead, by God's grace, he purifies a people for himself who are zealous for good works. Verse 14. So verses 1 to 6 are the details of what that looks like. So A, good works in the church. Starting with number one, the older men. Paul says, verse two, older men are to be sober-minded, 
dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. So the more mature men should be wise in decision-making, not flying around out of control from one thing to another, but sober-minded in their thinking, careful in their judgment, recognizing that lots of things in life are not black and white and easy to nail down, but instead they're gray, and they take time to figure out. Yet the most important things in life, spiritual things, those things are black and white. Because these men are sound in the faith and have good and godly priorities. So they keep the main thing of the gospel the main thing. You know, I'm so grateful to say I have a number of men who immediately come to my mind when I hear this description. For example, I remember being asked to lead a life group for the very first time in the church that I was attending back up in Vermont, so this is like 20 years ago, I was asked to be the life group leader, and the assistant leader was Bill LaGrange. Bill LaGrange was the oldest elder on the elder board at the time. I was absolutely certain he had forgotten more about the Bible than I had even learned up to that point, and he was such a godly, dignified, and humble man. In fact, I remember saying to him, Bill, why in the world am I leading this group and not you? You are far more qualified. You are far more godly. You should be leading the group. And I remember his answer as if it was yesterday. He said, Steve, there's nothing more exciting to me than a young man who loves the gospel and so desperately wants to live for the glory of God. So I'm thrilled that you're leading, and I'm excited for all the things that I'm going to learn from you. I also think of older men who came up on missions trips when we first launched the church. So Bill Crawford and Terry Hawkins, godly men who loved the Lord, were dignified, sound in the faith, and persevered to the end, spending the end of their days on missions trips from the south, coming to New England, where it is cold, and it rains in the morning, and then it snows in the afternoon, and then it's going to go back to rain, right? I mean, this is not exactly where they want to be. They came up on mission trips. Why? Because they wanted to see the gospel go forward in the least religious place in the United States. And just think about that in contrast to the movie Grumpy Old Men where these two old men care only about themselves, ice fishing, practical jokes, and chasing old women. Notice the title. They are grumpy old men rather than godly old men. Paul's commanding the old men to not be grumpy, but to be godly, sound in the faith, persevering to the end. Number two, godliness in older women. Paul says, look, verse 3, Likewise, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, and they are to teach what is good. So just like the older men, the older women are to be godly. In fact, the very first description there is reverent, which literally means temple fitting. So the idea is she lives her life in such a way that her behavior is appropriate for the presence of God himself. So godly, above reproach, respectful, 
and using her words to teach the younger women what godliness looks like, which the opposite, of course, would be not to teach, but to gossip. Which makes me think immediately of the musical, The Music Man. I'm not sure if you know that musical, but there's this part in the movie where Harold, the movie, the music man, interacts with the elderly ladies in the town, getting them all excited about the band, right? So he's stirring them up about the band that he's about to start. Then suddenly he mentions Marion, the librarian. And the ladies immediately go crazy with gossip. Hence the song, Pick a Little, Talk a Little. Pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, cheap, 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 pick a lot, talk a little more. Because that's what they're doing. They're like old hens in the farmyard spreading gossip. But older women are to be godly. So gossiping the gospel. So they're to speak what is true and right and good and godly, not only about who God is and how we're saved in and through the Lord Jesus, but how to live that out on a daily basis. Verse 4, Paul says, teach what is good. And so train the young women. Train the young women in what? In embracing what it uniquely means to be a woman, according to God's good and perfect plan for humanity. So number three, train the young women, to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. You know, our current culture, with its pressures and its expectations, has in so many ways robbed women of the blessing and the joy of staying home and being a wife and a mother, as if that's somehow inferior to having a career in climbing the corporate ladder. And let me be clear, there's nothing inherently sinful with women having a job outside the home. Now I know verse 5 says, working at home. But that's not saying she has to exclusively be a stay-at-home mom in order to be godly. But instead that she should be diligent, hardworking, not lazy, distracted or idle, more concerned about everybody else's business. So being a busybody gossip rather than being busy, sacrificial and serving for the sake of her household. So it's not sinful to have a job outside the home. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, be clear, there's no greater role, there's no greater responsibility that any woman could possibly have than being a godly wife and a godly mother. And there's certainly no harder job in all the world. Can I get an amen from the moms at least? Right? And just think about this. Consider the context specifically related here to the false teachers. This is one of the ways I believe that our culture is lying to us. So false teachers saying that being a stay-at-home mom is inferior to having a career. So having a career is superior to being a stay-at-home mom. Rather than knowing with clarity and conviction that being a mom, raising your kids, managing the home for the sake of the gospel is the greatest, most glorious role and responsibility that any woman could possibly have. Working at home means being diligent, not distracted. Hardworking, not idle. Busy, not a busy body. For the sake 
of your husband and your children. Now, how do we know that's the right interpretation? Well, we start by looking at the immediate context. Unfortunately, there's no clarifying phrases here in this passage. So then we look at similar passages. So I was interpreting the cloudy verses in light of the clearer passages, like 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul is already talking about older and younger men, older and younger women. He says, 1 Timothy 5.11, Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, verse 12, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. Instead, Paul says, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their own households, and give the adversary no occasion for for slander. So young women, don't be idle, lazy, busybody gossips, but work hard at home. Manage your family, love your husband, and take care of your kids. Super helpful. Third, we look for biblical consistency. Here's where Proverbs 31 is helpful. Describes an excellent wife and mother as working hard, both inside and outside of her home, diligently taking care of the family. So she's buying fields, she's planting vineyards, she's selling merchandise. Verse 27 says she looks well to the ways of her own household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So younger women work hard at home for sure, absolutely. That has to be your number one priority. You can also work outside the home including if you desire having a job or a career. So Paul's calling the women, in essence, to embrace womanhood, to love it, own it, be grateful for it, their unique roles and responsibilities, which are absolutely needed and are wonderful and are specific to women, rather than fighting against it. You know, I was recently at a restaurant, And this dad next to me told his little girl that it was time to go. And in response, the little girl was kicking and screaming and telling her dad essentially that she hated him and she hated his plan. It was ugly. It was very ugly. Watching this little girl reject the loving authority of her father and the good plan that he had for her life. You know, our culture does the exact same thing to God. Rejecting his loving authority, the reality that he created us male and female, and that he has a good plan for our lives, including roles and responsibilities that are consistent with our gender. Men, as godly husbands and fathers who love their wives and lead their families well, and women as godly wives and mothers who follow their husbands, enjoy being mothers, prioritizing their God-given roles, so wanting to manage their homes and rejoicing in managing their homes because they love God. They want to raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and they want to have a house where the gospel is proclaimed and where it's celebrated. May we be those who embrace God's good and perfect plan for our lives, rejoicing in the roles and responsibilities that are consistent with our age and with our gender. Which brings us to number four, godliness in younger men. Which is so funny, isn't it? 
Because there's a laundry list of things for all the other categories. Notice, six exhortations to older men. Twelve descriptions to older women. And seven commands to younger women. But look at what Paul says to younger men. Verse 6. Younger men are to be self-controlled. That's it. Just one thing. Young man, one command. Control yourselves. That's all he says. I really think you could apply this to anybody who's single. But doesn't that resonate with you? Parents with sons, doesn't that sum up what you're trying to do with your boys? I just want my boys to control themselves. But that self-control impacts every single area of their lives, right? Self-control in their actions, what they do. Self-control in their thoughts, what they think. Self-control in their attitudes, how they respond. And self-control in their passions, what they give themselves to. Godliness in young men looks like self-control. So young men, let me appeal to you. Live gloriously different than the culture around you and control yourselves. Or as Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity, 1 Timothy 4, 12. So older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Paul goes right back to godliness in Titus. Paul's command that he be an example to the church, both in godliness and in his teaching. Look with me at verse 7. Paul says, show yourself Titus. So now he transitions back to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned and won't give the opportunity for the devil. Make sure that your life matches your words, which makes total sense, doesn't it? Because there's nothing more damaging to a church than the lives of hypocritical pastors. I have to tell you, I feel this every single week as I study and I prepare to preach on Sunday, just the reality that this word needs to first and foremost have its good effect on my own heart and my own life, convicting me of sin and causing me to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus so that I am a man who's above reproach before I ever step up to this pulpit and declare that truth to you. You know, they asked Robert Murray McShane, how he prepared for his sermons. And he answered saying, first I weep for my own sins, then I weep for the sins of my people. Now why would he weep? Well, because Robert Murray McShane also said, the greatest gift that I could ever give to my congregation is the gift of my own personal holiness. So a pastor whose life is above reproach. Verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech so that an opponent has nothing evil to say about you. My goodness, Titus, 
If you're going to talk the talk, you must walk the walk. Your life must be a glorious demonstration of your profession of faith. But I can't think of a better example of living gloriously different than where Paul goes next. Verses 9 and 10. Paul says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. First and foremost, I want you to know the Bible does not condone slavery. It doesn't encourage or endorse it in any way, and it's certainly been a stain on every single society that's embraced it throughout the years, including Britain and the United States. It's also helpful for you to know Christians are the ones who helped end slavery. Men like Wilberforce, Sharp, and John Wesley standing in opposition until slavery was outlawed in Britain in 1807 and then in 1865 in the United States. I don't want to get lost in specifics, but I do want to highlight how gloriously different Christian slaves were called to be in the midst of this horrible institution So rather than fighting the system, they're to be submissive to their masters. And not just some of the time, but all of the time. So well-pleasing both in their actions and in their attitudes. So not arguing, not stealing, but showing good faith. Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrines of God our Savior. Do you see how gloriously different that is? And how applicable that is to every single one of us this morning. That what matters most is not our circumstances or our scenarios, but how we respond to those situations with our actions and with our attitudes. So that even if we're physically enslaved or persecuted or even in prison, right, in bondage, we're still spiritually set free. The sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we can be physically in bondage, yet we're spiritually free, free to love others, free to do good works, free to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. You can be physically bound, but you are always and forever spiritually free. So in everything, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation, your life should adorn the gospel of grace that saved you. Which Paul's abundantly clear must be, number two, the reason for your good works. So the only motivation that will ever sustain, enable, or empower a person to live for the glory of God with a life adorned by good works must be the gospel of grace. Paul says, look at verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right now, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Notice how God's grace is the heart and soul and driving force for every single step in God's great work of redemption, starting with number one, salvation. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But what does that mean? 
Well, it means God's grace is seen most clearly in the coming of Jesus. He appeared. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glories of the only Son, full of grace and truth. So it's God's grace that we rejoice in, even when we quote John 3.16, because we didn't deserve it. Our actions didn't merit it. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, universal offer of the gospel, will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved. Through him. Do you see God's grace has appeared in the Lord Jesus? The reality that he's 100% God, he's 100% man, that he lived a sinless life, that he was crucified, dead and buried, that he remained in the grave for three days just to confirm that he was really dead. Then he really did rise from the dead, proving that he conquered sin, death, and the devil. And he appeared to over 500 men, women, and children before his ascension to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he rules and he reigns until he returns. Here's the facts. He appeared to bring salvation so that it's available to all people everywhere. That's what verse 11 says. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. So if you're here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Christ, then I want you to listen to me very carefully. And I want you to listen to verse 11 very carefully because Jesus came for one reason. He came to save sinners. He appeared to bring salvation to all people. Well, all people includes you. So God's grace is being offered to you right now. Because you're a sinner who deserves God's judgment. God created you and God called you to live for God's glory. And yet you rejected him. You lived for yourself. That's sin. And the wages of sin is death. But God is offering you life in Christ if you will but repent and believe. So that you can be forgiven. So that you can be empowered by his spirit to live for his glory the way that God intended you to live. Overwhelmed by grace and zealous for good works. Oh, I plead with you. Repent and believe. And live. Delighting yourself in the Lord Jesus and being zealous for good works. But God's grace is not only a saving grace, it's also a training grace. So grace that instructs you and empowers you through the gift of God himself, the Holy Spirit, to put sin to death and to walk in righteousness, which is be God's grace and sanctification. Or in other words, God's kindness enabling you to repent and to keep repenting, Romans 2.4. So the process of becoming more like the Lord Jesus, so more godly. Look at how Paul says this over and over and over again, starting in verse 12. He says, training us. Training us to do what? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That means that you're 
putting off sin and you're putting on righteousness. That's what true repentance is. Putting off ungodliness and worldly passions, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, and putting on being self-controlled, upright, and godly. He does it again. Look at verse 14. Jesus, our great God and Savior, gave himself for us to redeem us. To redeem us from what? To redeem us from all lawlessness. Put off all lawlessness and put on purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see that it is God's grace in salvation and it's God's grace in sanctification. But how exactly does that get worked out in our daily lives? You know, I was just talking to my son about this the other day. He asked me about the difference between his head and his heart. Because he believes all the facts about Jesus. So he's not struggling with the reality that Jesus is God not struggling with his life, his miracles, his teaching, his death, burial, or his resurrection. He knows the facts about Jesus, and he believes the facts about Jesus in his head. But what about his heart? Well, I would suggest here's where salvation and sanctification becomes real. Because it's not just about the facts of who Jesus is, but the relationship that comes from what Jesus has done. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now let me just ask, do you know what redeem means? What does it mean to redeem something? Well, it means to buy something back. So just picture a person who is enslaved to a wicked owner. Spiritually speaking, this is what the Bible talks about in our unbelief. We're enslaved to a wicked owner, namely the devil. And yet God is offering to buy you back. In fact, it's bigger than that, isn't it? He gave up his only son, sold him into slavery in order to buy you back. To buy us back. And to make us his very own possession. His son's and his daughters. So I asked my son, what motivates you to obey your father? Is it the fact that I'm your dad? Or is it bigger than that? Like our relationship. That I love you. That I care for you. That I'm willing to do anything for you. That I feed you, clothe you, comfort you, encourage you, spur you on, and discipline you. Because I love you. And because I love you, in our relationship, you desire to obey me. To respect me. And to live in a way that is right and pleasing to me. And delights me. And that never changes the fact that you're my son. 
and I delight in you, and I love you. But it's in response to my love for you that you desire to live in a way that delights me. You see, it works the same way with our loving Heavenly Father. Our heart is not filled up and overflowing just because of the facts about Jesus, but because of our relationship with Jesus, that he gave himself for us, to redeem us. So he came into the world for us. He lived a perfect life for us. He went to the cross for us. He wore the crown of thorns for us. He was mocked and beaten for us. He was crucified for us. He bled and died for us. He endured God's wrath for us. He experienced hell for us. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's our relationship with Jesus that captures our heart and causes us to be a people who are zealous for good works. Right now in the present age, because we love Jesus and we're so thankful for Jesus, we are delighted in the Lord Jesus. It's that love that motivates us to live for the Lord Jesus. So it's in response that all that he's done, that we want to obey him, respect him, and live in a way that is pleasing to him so that his name might be glorified by all who see us living gloriously different, which only happens by his grace and for his glory. Now just think about my introduction and how we live in a culture that is drowning in gender confusion. And now we have this incredible opportunity to delight in who God has made us to be, including our sex, our gender, our personalities, and our identity. And to be overwhelmed that He not only created us, but that He redeemed us to live for His glory, expressing our gratitude out of our hearts, living lives that are zealous for good works, including embracing our roles and responsibilities as men and women. Do you see how gloriously different that is? But how it's driven, not by duty, but by delight. It's driven by our relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's the motivation. It's driven by relationship. It's that relationship that makes heaven so wonderful. Because it's God's grace that will protect us all the way to glory. And it's being in his presence that will make heaven so great and glorious. I'm so tired of being at funerals where they tell me what heaven's going to be like. Oh, I get to play golf all the time. I get to see my little puppy again that I miss so very much. That I get to dance with my spouse who has passed before me. That is not the glory of heaven. The glory of heaven is being in God's presence for all eternity. That's why verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, is there anything better than seeing someone that you love? I mean, think about the imagery of Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. I mean, what's the best part of every marriage ceremony? You know this. Is it not when the doors are open and the bride and the bridegroom finally see one another for the very first time that day? Even men who don't like watching, you know, mushy movies, right? They still cry and everybody does this, right? Watching him, watching her, watching him, watching her, right? 
It's the best part of the wedding. Everything else, the pastor's talking, some things are happening, right? But everybody waits for that. It's the bridegroom seeing the bride, and the bride seeing the bridegroom. But let me ask you this question as you think about that. Is that the best part of their relationship? That one moment? Absolutely not. The best part of their relationship is the rest of their lives together. Well, that's how it works with Jesus. Oh, the glory of seeing him. But that's not the best part. The best part is that we get to be with him for all eternity. So it's God's grace from start to finish. God's grace in salvation, God's grace in sanctification, and God's grace in glorification. So by God's grace, may we be a people who are absolutely enamored, captured with the Lord Jesus, so that out of our love for him, our delight in him, we are a people who are zealous for good works. Which Paul makes clear includes wholeheartedly embracing the roles and the responsibilities consistent with our age and our gender. As we close, it's very difficult to take all of that in and then try to apply it to your very specific application. So your specific age, your specific gender. That would be difficult to come up with applications for all of you. So instead, what I want to do as we close is just ask you some questions so that you can reflect on what it looks like for you personally to be a person who is zealous for good works. Starting with this. Are you overwhelmed by what God has done specifically for you in sending the Lord Jesus for your salvation? Are you overwhelmed by that? Are you overwhelmed by the reality that he redeemed you? That he looked at you and made the decision to buy you back so that you might be his for all eternity. Are you overwhelmed by that? Is your heart captured by that? That's the heart of the gospel. And that's what's going on and what needs to motivate you to be a person who lives for the glory of God, being zealous for good works. But if that's not in place then a command to be zealous for good works is burdensome. And it's just a bunch of duties. So the first question, are you overwhelmed by what God has done specifically for you in the Lord Jesus for your salvation? You have to start there. Here's another question. What's one thing you can do to increase your joy in God. What's one thing that you can do 
on a daily basis to increase your joy in God. To help you move your eyes from the here and now to Him. So that you can stay centered. Maybe it's a verse to meditate on. A passage to memorize. One thought, one reflection, one key idea to hold on to. To motivate you to live for the glory of God. Here's mine. Three words. Titus 3.5 He saved me. It is so crystal clear to me that I did not deserve that. And he tells me that. It does not depend on my works or my efforts. Yet he saved me. Motivates everything that I do in life. I lose my way. He saved me. That's right. What a joy to serve him. This is hard. He saved me. Here's three other words that I love. It is finished. Praise God. What's it for you? One thing. One verse. One idea. So that you might increase your joy in God. So we think about being zealous for good works. What's one area in your life where you need to grow in being more self-controlled? One area. More self-controlled. Self-control was listed for everybody. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Be self-controlled. Control yourself. What's one area where you can grow in being more self-controlled? Speech, actions, attitude. One area. What's the single biggest time waster in your life? Identify that. Control yourself. Put that to death. Redeem it for God's glory. Here's another question. By God's grace, what particular sin would you like to put to death? This is verse 12. In what way would you like to train yourself to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so you can live self-controlled, upright, and godly life? One area. As we think about age and gender, here's a great question. Profound question. Are you truly grateful for who God created you to be? Are you grateful for who he made you to be? And are you grateful for where he has you in this particular season of your life? Are you embracing the fact that God made you to be a man or made you to be a woman? Are you grateful for your specific roles, your specific responsibilities? Are you thankful for your specific personality, for your unique gifting and your abilities? Or do you wish that you were someone else? Beloved, I so desperately want you to be clear. It is truly God's grace from start to finish, salvation, sanctification, and glorification. And yet he saved us. 
in order to be a people who are zealous for good works. May God give us the grace that first and foremost, we might delight ourselves in the Lord Jesus, that we might be captured by him, enamored with his finished work for our salvation, with great clarity, courage, and conviction. May that be what motivates us to be a people who are zealous for good works, living gloriously different for his glory, his honor, and his praise. In this present age, our current culture, may we live gloriously different. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we're so grateful for how practical your word is. How it literally impacts every single area of our lives. And at the heart of it is our affections. What is it that we love? Oh, Lord, I pray that you would be at work, that we would love the Lord Jesus, that we would be overwhelmed by grace, overwhelmed by mercy, undeserved kindness, that you sent your son so that we can be forgiven of our sin and have the hope of eternal life, that we can be given the gift of the Spirit and empowered to live the way that you have called and commanded us to live. Lord, I pray that you would be at work any who are here this morning who do not know you, oh Lord, I pray that you would work in their minds and in their hearts, that they would delight themselves in the Lord Jesus. Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, help us to never get over the gospel, never get over the reality that he saved us. We didn't deserve any of it. And that he empowers us I pray that it would not be a duty. Help us to not have it be a duty, but a delight, a privilege to live for your glory, honor, and praise. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.